and welcome to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seske. As we wrap up season one of the show, we've covered many perspectives of private and public company CFOs and what makes the modern CFO. Today, we're kicking off a great episode with the CFO of ClearCo, formerly ClearBank, with Kurt Sigstead. Kurt, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's great. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Awesome. So before we get started, let's just tell the audience a little bit about ClearCo, what it is, and what the transition from Main Street to Digital Street means in terms of financing innovation in this new economy. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks for that. Yeah, so in a nutshell, ClearCo is building the capital infrastructure for the internet. So we work with digital founders, software platforms, and financial institutions to remove the complexity of financing growth. You know, our first step was we revolutionized the way founders get capital and with a way to grow through the, our MCA product. And in doing so, we created a new asset class. And then we found ourselves at the center of an emerging trend, embedded finance. Um, and so we have, you know, relationships and partnerships with companies like Big Commerce, Klarna, Silicon Valley Bank, where we provide the embedded capital solution. In effect, the ability for them to offer their customers a financing solution where they couldn't before. And this leverages our AI and machine learning, our capital markets expertise, and our core technical and lending and regulatory expertise. So that, in essence, is you know, what we do. And you know, what does that mean in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, it means that we can, in a very innovative way, provide capital, provide advice, provide benchmarking, provide a means by which entrepreneurs can improve their business with capital by using data. And that's important core of, of our business is our ability to leverage third-party data sources to create a modern finance platform that can serve you know, these digital founders. And that's really, as you were getting to, Andrew, serving really what is a global transition from Main Street to Digital Street. And as more and more businesses are founded, at least initially online, as businesses sort of become less and less geographically constrained, they don't have the aspects that typical financing institutions like banks or credit unions are looking for. They don't have collateral, they don't have inventory, they don't have assets, but they do have a lot of data. And their data is very revealing with respect to how the business is performing, what the opportunity is for that business. And so what we found is this vast global underserved market, and we're helping those entrepreneurs, those founders, those business owners grow their businesses, as I mentioned, with capital and, and with advice. So if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm thinking about I'm going to raise more capital. Where does ClearCo fit in the schema of private investments? Is it in the same vein as venture capital or private equity or angel investing? I know that it's actually mostly non-dilutive capital or almost entirely non-dilutive capital. So why is that so important to entrepreneurs? And how should they think about what leveraging their data could mean for financing their you know, future growth? Absolutely. So we're part of a spectrum. We're not in the business of competing with venture capital or with seed investors or with friends and family. We're in the business of being a complementary pool of capital for entrepreneurs to leverage as they grow their business. And in any business, there are aspects which are repeatable. So you have an understanding of how the business is actually going to perform based on data, historical data, and how you might project that, like your return on ad spend or how much you know, inventory you need relative to your sales growth. 
But there are other aspects of your business which are, they're not repeatable. It's innovation that you may have underway. It's actually sort of kicking off or very early stage, you know, business. Where ClearCo comes in is, is in those aspects of the business that are repeatable. And so our perspective and what we found, you know, product market fit with is the fact that entrepreneurs don't want to give up equity in their company and therefore ownership for aspects of their business that are effectively repeatable. It's okay. I know if I put a dollar here, I will get $3 in revenue. So why should I give up equity for that? That's not risk that, you know, equity holders need to take. That's more of a, you know, sort of an operational piece of risk, not a venture risk. And so that's why we're complementary. That's why I think we found a fit because as businesses grow, ownership's important for entrepreneurs. It's part of the economic puzzle. And so if we can help them control their destiny, if we can help them provide access, lower cost capital effectively and maintain ownership, then you know we think we're doing our job. And so we can be great partners. Absolutely. That's really incredible. And we're talking about this as if, as if it's conceptual, but it's now this company is growing in a major way. So ClearCo just cleared its Series C round and at a massive investment and massive valuation. How did you go about preparing the company for that transaction and getting the, the house in order? We just finished speaking with an ex-partner, Brian Hughes, about you know the modern CFO is always prepared and takes really aggressive steps of you know, managing teams and being communicative across sectors. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you prepared for that transaction and maybe what the modern CFO role means for you. And maybe for some of these earlier companies who are looking for alternative routes to financing the repeatable aspects of their business. Absolutely. So we always knew we were going to do our Series C. That was an inevitable part of the path. We had seen our business grow dramatically during 2020. You know, we were riding the tailwinds of the transition to e-commerce and the incredible growth, you know, the entire world saw as that as a channel and the number of businesses founded online. And um, two is we had really invested in uh, the embedded finance opportunity. So buy now, pay later was obviously a theme that really emerged in, in the fintech world. We are a leader in the buy now, pay later, but on the business B2B side, not B2C. B2C is well understood. There's lots of large companies in that space from Klarna to a firm, you know, even PayPal is, has offerings on that side. But there really isn't anyone on the B2B side of that equation, at least yet. I'm sure there will be. And so with those two sort of pillars in mind, we kicked off our process. And, you know, for me, there's really three aspects to a successful process. And this is obviously something I learned over many years, uh, helping companies access the market, which is you have to have a bulletproof process. So you've got to start with a large funnel. You've got to work that funnel and you're eventually going to have a number of investors who come out the bottom who are committed to funding the company and at terms that um, are acceptable to the board and to the founders of the company. Two is you've got to have performance. And investors really want to understand, at least at the Series C level, how $1 of investment turns into 5 to $10 of return. You know? And it's got to be a very repeatable process, i.e., in the Series C, you're not introducing new operational risk, you're introducing scaling risk. There's product market fit, your business works, it's got a huge TAM, 
And really, it's about scaling the company. There's typically sort of a second chapter you introduce, which for us was the success we were having on buy now, pay later and B2B because our business had grown primarily on our core MCA and inventory product. And the third is you've got to have a solid market backdrop. None of this happens in isolation. Investors are influenced every day by what happens in the capital markets, uh, what's going on with their investments and how other businesses and their portfolios are growing. You know, we were very fortunate. Obviously, we can control a couple of those aspects, but, you know, we had a very, like, Q1 is when we started really raising capital, you know, seriously. We, we obviously had a number of meetings before the holiday season, really just tuning up the presentation, getting feedback, starting that process, but really beginning at Q1. And a firm goes public, has a tremendous, you know, sort of IPO and return. We saw Stripe raise, you know, 100 billion valuation. Coinbase was on track to, to go public. Robinhood was having absolutely outstanding, you know, results. So, and there were many, many more like Marquetta is now going public. I don't mean to call those out. There's been a lot of successful companies, but fintech in particular came right into the spotlight in Q1. And so uh, those are sort of the three pillars. So what do I do in terms of what was my job? My job was to ensure that our forecast was bulletproof. It was highly conservative yet aggressive. And so what do I mean by that? You know, our job is to express the business in the most optimistic way that we can as a company in terms of one, knowing that we have an incredibly optimistic outlook. That's why we're here. We've got a big opportunity. But at the same time, building in aspects to the forecast that are not leaps of faith, i.e., you know, for us, the size of our marketplace. Well, you know, if there's 10 to 12 trillion of GMV globally, which is cited in a bunch of market forecasts, then, you know, trillions of dollars, tens of trillions of dollars, us saying that we can get to 20, 40 billion, 100 billion of GMV, well, that's a pretty conservative, like it's, we don't have to get a lot of market share. So a lot of those types of aspects to set the context of your forecast conservatively relative to a lot of external metrics is, I think, uh, an important aspect to getting investors to buy into your forecast. And two is that it's based on your existing business. And so we were you know, very, very focused on that. And third is you want to make sure that as you go through the funding process, that you're meeting and beating your numbers. Because investors start to ask for like, well, how'd you do during January? How'd you do during February? How'd you do, you know, da, da. And so you want to be sure that you didn't decide for some reason to make, you know, your Q1 in our case, like anything heroic or anything that was outside of your historical norms in terms of growth. And so we were very careful about that. A lot of thought, a lot of revisions, a lot of thinking, because everything's got to tie together, as, as I'm sure, Andrew, you know, and talking to other CFOs, there's, and it's got to tie to our strategy and how, you know, in our case, um, our two co-founders, Andrew and Michelle, you know, are going to talk about the business strategically with our investors. So, you know, if you fail to prepare, you're preparing to fail. You know, it's kind of like, there's like that old adage. So we spent a lot of time on that. And then the second piece of it is obviously thinking about the second and third order diligence that's going to support that. And for us, it was, it's beating up the metrics, it's analyzing the data, it's focusing on, okay, so what are the cohorts doing? 
How do we present that data in a way that reflects our business? Not all of it is, is obviously the best news. You have to be prepared to present the business in a way that is consistent and, and um, you know, gives investors real insight into how you operate the business. But you have to do a lot of thinking about how best to present that data because investors don't have any context you know, when they come in. And your job as, a, I think, a modern CFO and as a modern finance team is a much bigger understanding of strategy. So you set the context by which the numbers are being presented because out of context, you know, I think they can be misinterpreted. There's a lot of different business models uh, in fintech and SaaS. And so that's important. So that was really, of course, a lot of practice. There's probably a thousand versions of the pitch, you know, that we went through hours and hours of working through it, lots of feedback. But, uh, you know, that sort of was the underpinning of the process um, and happy to go into it more, Andrew, if there's if you have another question. I think that's perfect. I always find one point in a podcast where I tell listeners to just go back and listen to that that piece and the answer to that question at least two or three times over again. I think that was a, the, the perfect answer there. I did want to mention that this isn't a first time around in as a CFO it is, but in the capacity that you're working, this you've been... You have a ton of experience. So I want to kind of go back to, you know, to Rhode Island. You were in maybe two of the, I'm very biased in saying this, but I think you were in two of the roughest college sports known to man, both rugby and rowing. You're, I'm again, a little biased towards the rowing aspect. Yes. Uh, we're at, you're leaving Brown and you are heading to JP Morgan, where you did over a 20 year stint, where you rose all the way to the head of West Coast tech investment banking. So mm-hmm. you've got a very, very, storied and you know veteran experience and a great eye for what you need to be looking for in terms of raising capital and structuring deals. And do you also have a great story about how you met the co-founders, Andrew and uh, Michelle? I'd love to hear a little bit more about what was going on in the world that brought you into investment banking and uh, especially the technology side of investment banking. And I think as we go through some of those lessons, it will feed into you know the story of how you came to, to meet Andrew and how you came to move over to the, the CFO role you're at now. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we're, we're kindred spirits on the rowing side, Andrew. And as I realized, rowing prepared me to be very good at suffering and sort of pushing through tough goals and, and sort of tougher times. So, you know, I appreciate that about the sport and it's always been very close to my heart. But leaving, leaving college, leaving Brown, you know, one of the things that was really fascinating to me was obviously, you know, the opportunity in investment banking. because it had a number of aspects associated with it, which was related to, you know, very fast paced business environment, decision making with very senior people and sort of getting right into the heart of, of core business decisions that made a difference. You know, having a real impact, seeing that, you know, your transactions or the deals you're working on sort of, you know, impact the landscape strategically and in the world. And, you know, that's very attractive. It was at the time. And, and it was certainly a, from an environment standpoint, it was tough. It was uh, long hours and <laughs> learning to rework a lot of stuff. But it, it taught me a lot and it prepared me for, you know, obviously a very long career at JP Morgan. And, and uh, I'm very grateful to, to JP Morgan and my years there. It was, it's a phenomenal company. Jamie Dimon is an absolutely exceptional CEO and, and the people there are fantastic. From a technology standpoint, I, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a CS major. I was just really became interested in how technology was going to change the world. And, you know, as I came out of college, tech was obviously becoming more important. And you had 
you know, companies like Netscape emerged. That's where Andreessen, Mark Andreessen, obviously, and Ben Horowitz, you know, made their fortunes. And, you know, sort of the future starts from there as the internet becomes, you know, accessible to the average consumer. So that took me through. But what really, you know, through my career at JP Morgan, what really got me excited, and, and I realized this sort of sort of in my last couple of years, was working with, with founders. And in particular, working with CEO founders who had built their businesses from the ground up, uh, had made the transitions through the various levels of financing and growth. And, uh, you know, we got to work with them going public. And I was fortunate to work with like Jeff Lawson at Twilio and the team, Eric Wan at Zoom, you know, obviously relevant names, a whole host of other names, which, you know, that brings me to Andrew and Michelle. And so, you know, as I, as I sort of reflected on, okay, I've done a lot, you know, I, I say this not, you know, to brag, but I, had done a hundred IPOs and 250 billion of tech MA. And, and I was looking for that. Okay. So what do I really like, if I really narrow it down to what I really want to do, I want to work with founders in an incredibly constructive way, because I have a very strong personal belief that entrepreneurs and founders are the people changing this world for the better. And any big problem, whether it's figuring out how to do these incredible vaccines that we've all been benefited from to, you know, electric cars to going into space, whatever, you know, it's entrepreneurs that are, that are making the big difference um, or people with very entrepreneurial thinking within large institutions. And so I had committed to being a board member for an organization called the C100, which is uh, an organization not-for-profit that helps Canadian tech entrepreneurs connect with U.S. venture capitalists and also U.S. talent. And, you know, 10 years ago for a U.S. investor to invest in Canada, it was like, huh, you know, where's Canada? Like, I, I didn't even know they had technology. I thought it was lumberjacks and donut shops. And, you know, today it's just like another state. There's, you know, Toronto, Montreal, Waterloo, uh, Western Canada, Vancouver, all have very thriving ecosystems. And, uh, but anyway, as part of that role, that's how I got to know Andrew and eventually Michelle. And, you know, lots of great conversations. The mission of ClearBank is obviously powerful, you know, by, by founders, for founders, and just the impact that we could have in helping families, entrepreneurs get their businesses off the ground. And, and just the social piece of, you know, we fund, you know, far more women entrepreneurs than the venture capital industry. We fund far more, you know, minorities or people of color and, and it's on a global basis. And we just have just a huge impact that was very attractive. And so that's how, you know, I, I went through my finance career and how I got to ClearCo and, and why I'm so passionate about the mission of, of helping entrepreneurs. I know it must be a, a personality type and, you know, it, it very rampant in athletics and all of that. But when you were leaving JP Morgan, what was the, you know, that exit like? And how did you get involved with C100 or help it get up off and up the ground to, you know, incorporate all of North America? Because, I think there would have been some temptation, but again, maybe not for your personality type to, you know, take time off and transition, but then uh, no, you're at a rocket shipping company as a CFO full-time back at, um, you know, a very aggressive, fast pace, just like the banking world. What made you want to continue going on? I know you said you really enjoy forming personal relationships with movers and shakers and entrepreneurs of the world because they drive innovation, but was there a moment of hesitation or did you take a little time off or uh, did you find an opportunity to meet Andrew Michelle and know that was the next step just based off of, um, you know, all the experience getting C100 to a, a Yeah. 
So like JP Morgan is an incredibly stimulating place to work and it's, you know, you, you work with great people, but I, I gotten to know Andrew and the ClearCo at the time ClearBank team and, and gotten to know Michelle almost a year in advance before I left, you know, we started the conversation and, you know, you got to get to know each other. This is another part of the modern CFO, you know, theme in my mind, which is you're becoming a strategic partner with the CEO and founders of the company. And so it's not just a like, hi, you're hiring a job for the CFO. It's like, we're bringing on a strategic partner and we better figure out kind of where we're aligned and where we're not. So anyway, back to exiting JP Morgan or, or coming up on that. So I, I talked about it a lot with some of my senior colleagues and, and it was a very, you know, in terms of investment banking, a very graceful exit. It can be pretty ugly. It's, it's often a brutal business, sharp elbows. But I left, uh, you know, I, re- I left JP Morgan on March 31st of 2020, and I joined Clearco on April 1st. I mean, wow. there was no transition, no time off, no, I didn't need the reflection. I was really committed to what Clearco was doing. I didn't need to reflect on my life or, you know, take that time to breathe. I, I love to work. And I really do believe that if you are inspired by what you do, you don't actually, it's not like it's work. You know, you get tired, you're spending a lot of time and effort and you do have to take, you know, you got time to rest or to, you know, celebrate your victories. But, you know, I, I was just as energized by the mission and the opportunity at ClearCo. So there was a vetting process. I, I, you know, it was a lot of interviewing effectively over a long period of time. And it was a very friendly, you know, call it exit from JP Morgan. And, and we worked together like JP Morgan's with other partners is, is an important part of our ecosystem as well today at Clearco. And so, yeah, so hopefully that gives you a perspective on how that transition was made and getting to uh, it. Actually, I, I know it may seem like a, a rare personality type, but it's very consistent on, on this podcast. I was thinking also the role and relationship between CFO and CEO. It's interesting that you said over the course of a year, you spent time getting to know the company. What do you think yeah. are the most important aspects of, I know, especially as you know, the company itself and for all the other companies that Clearco works with, leveraging data is obviously very important to make more strategic decisions. The role has sort of shifted away from traditional accounting and moved way closer towards data science and um, communication of these strategic decisions across different uh, pieces of the organization. Um, you know, a really great piece of that is the stress of fundraising and being able to clearly communicate every of the pillars you just did. And I know a big piece of that is trying to pair the expectations and visions of a CEO with the you know very real data that is being sifted through and worked on by the CFO. So I'm kind mm-hmm. of curious what you think about. I know it's really interesting that you took a full year to form that relationship. I think that says a lot about you know, how successful it must be. But what do you think is most important in terms of managing those CEO, CFO relationship types? Well, so in our case, Andrew and Michelle are equal co-founders. And then we have a, and we have a series of other co-founders, but they really lead the company. And the most important piece you have to figure out is trust. And, you know, it sounds a bit cliche-ish, but you've got you've to find the opportunity over those conversations. And we did to ask each other hard questions about, okay, we're thinking about this, Kurt, like, how would you approach it, da-da-da-da? And I asked, like, well, how are you guys doing? Or why didn't you do this this way or do that way? And, and you're sort of, you're getting a sense of how you're going to operate because if you're coming on as a strategic partner effectively, which I do think is really the role of the modern CFO, 
you're going to have to have a common operating system effectively because you're going to have to answer questions where all three of you are not in the room, but they're going to have to be consistently or they're going to have to be based on a consistent framework. And you're going to have to defend your decision-making post-decision with your partners just in the way you would anyway in any, like if it was a law firm or a financial firm, you better have a framework by which everyone can understand how you got there. So that's sort of the piece that, that you figure out. The thing that I've learned to do, because that's all part of it too, is to withhold bias or judgment based on my experience at JP Morgan. Because when Andrew and Michelle went around to, or, or were forming the company, they probably had a hundred plus meetings with various finance individuals who said they were absolutely crazy. This will never work. And how in the world could you do this? This is the way it's been done for a hundred years and da da da. you can imagine. And so, of course, there's aspects of that that you know, I had as sort of bias or sort of frameworks that I had growing up, I would say, and working at JP Morgan. And I've had to learn to, you know, just understand it, let it play out, add constructive aspects to it, and then, you know, just course correct where we can let things ride out because there could be something really interesting around the corner on some of those decisions we make that, you know, wouldn't be obvious in the same frameworks that some of the more traditional financing companies work in. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's a great answer. That takes a great amount of humility as well. Oh, yeah. Like, that's the other thing, you know, as I'm glad you brought that up. You got to put the ego in the bottom drawer. You're an at service leader. So you're here to help people win. You're not here to push your career in a certain direction or to look good because it doesn't fit with what, you know, the mission of, and, and I would say this is probably for any modern CFO is like, because you're serving the board, you're serving the audit committee, you're serving the founders, you're serving all the employees, you're serving investors. You've got to be in that mindset so that when you get criticism, you get feedback or otherwise, you got to just take it in. It's all for the better of the company and you know push forward. So yeah, no, it's a good point. Sounds like you may have sat in the middle of the boat in college. Um, no, it sounds great. <laughs> I'm sort of curious as to when you create a new marketplace like this, you said, that Intercell had a vision where it's easily imagined people saying there's no marketplace for this because there's no obvious quick profit to be made. When you're creating a new market like that, what do you think was the biggest operational challenge you overcame? Was it in communicating that vision or was it doing the proof of concept to grow? I know in the Series C point, you're a little past all the product market envisioning that. But uh, what do you think was one of those big operational challenges in explaining how this could be a big piece of the private market puzzle? Yeah, I think that there were two parts to it that, you know, sort of frame the, the two biggest pieces of puzzle you had to solve first. One was finding out through trial and error what data sources and what combination of data sources are actually going to lead to the best outcomes, both in terms of projecting growth but also reducing risk. And then two, and that's a lot of, there was a lot of trial and error at the beginning of this. Like it all all seems very routine at this point, but that was not obvious three, four years ago. And no one has had been doing it. So there was no model to copy. Um, And then the second piece is to then take that data and that experience and find an investor that will believe in those models in order to get the capital to grow your business. So, you know, in ClearCo's case, we have 
over 500 billion of committed funding from third-party providers. And we've built those relationships because of the integrity of our data and the results in terms of loss rates and returns that we provide to those third-party data funds. But in the beginning, that wasn't obvious. Now, today, we, you know, we have very regular and constructive dialogue with a whole series of investors on the debt side. But that was tough because debt investors, and this is no disrespect to those who may listen to this podcast, they look at it glass half empty. What could go wrong? Like, how do I really protect my downside if everything that ClearCo is telling me doesn't happen? Like, where, do, where are the stock gaps as opposed to you know, the equity investor, which is looking at, wow, this could be this big or it could even be this big. And so I'll take the risk. So those are the two pieces, Andrew, that were, that were tough to get buy-in and operationally sort of harnessed early in the company's development. So I kind of want to take one quick step back and think because of your involvement with the C100 and just how many entrepreneurs you've got to live alongside through JP Morgan and now doing it yourself with ClearCo and with the giant amount of entrepreneurs in the angel network, uh, is there something that you feel, and just totally industry agnostic, a technology or an individual, is there something or someone, or is there some trend that you think is underestimated in the world today? Something that you feel most people just don't quite understand the impact of whether, you know, yeah, like I said, a new technology. And then if the, that trend is being underestimated, do you feel there's an entrepreneur or somebody that you look up to who's making a difference there? You know, it's a great question. And it's, uh, I, I sort of come back to sort of my, my core principle. I, I think one thing that is underestimated globally, and I, and I mean this globally, is the power of the committed entrepreneur, the power of someone, an individual who is committed to change, who is committed to development, who's committed to their idea and what they're able to accomplish if they have the right resources to do that. And that I think is underestimated globally. We have still billions of people on this planet who are in some way don't have the resources available that other billions do. And we're not tapping into the greatest resource we have in this world, which is our human colleagues and capital and other inhabitants on the planet. And I think that is something that we often underestimate is it all seems very normal when we look back. But when you look back over history, it's really people who make a difference. And so our responsibility, if we want the best out of this world and the best out of, you know, from business to science to education, we, we need to empower these people and, and give them the resources. And look, that in some ways that it sounds a bit you know, underlining ClearCo, but that it, for me, it's been part of like what sort of why I'm so aligned with the mission is this is one small part of the puzzle that there's lots of people working on this, whether it's, you know, making education more available, whether making healthcare more available, making information more available, computers, internet, whatever it is, the resources to make sure that, you know, if there's someone out there with a great idea, that there's just nothing that gets in the way that you know, for them to realize that idea, if, if in fact is, is something worth pursuing. That's really, for me, you know, something that we tend to underestimate. I don't know if we could possibly end on much higher of a note than that, but is there any way anyone can get in touch with you or learn more about ClearCo that you want to mention? Absolutely. We're obviously on the internet. You can find us at clearco.com and, uh, or clearbank.com. Obviously our old handle works. 
And, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. So, you know, just ping me, DM me on LinkedIn. If you have any questions or want to connect, I'm happy to. Excellent. Thanks so much. Yeah. This has been Thank the CFO Podcast. Please feel free to like and subscribe. It really does help. Thanks again, Kurt. Thank you.